Welcome back to The Brief. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. And I'm John Elmer. On this episode, a special broadcast on the war in the Gaza Strip, we are joined by co-founder of The Brief, Justin Poders, here to chat with us. Welcome, Justin. Hi, Justin. Hey, guys. Hi. So, a lot of ground to cover. We might as well get right into it. Yeah. Yeah, where do we start? Well, today we're recording on October 29th. This is after two and a half days of no internet, completely just a communications blackout since Friday. Last night, the internet was restored, and so we've been able to reach friends and colleagues in Gaza. It's just been harrowing seeing what had happened in those, you know, what, 65, 75 hours that we weren't getting much from Gaza. So, yeah, John, what do we know so far? Where are we? Situate us in this current catastrophe right now. Well, yeah, I mean, the blackout ended up being 30 complete hours with no communication at all internally or externally to the Gaza Strip, which is just really unbelievable to think about and was really devastating to watch. But it means like the most basic things like their 911 service 101, it didn't work. So nobody could send out distress calls. None of the rescue teams could communicate with other rescue teams in the field. Hospitals um, couldn't be alerted that people were coming, like all the kind of basic emergency functions um, that, that are really it's really almost unspeakable to think about the number of people that died and the absolute horror of what that must have been like. I mean, just even for us here, not being able to communicate with people, but people in the strip couldn't communicate. And, you know, the stories that we hear uh, about deaths, um, but the stories that we hear about, we don't hear about survivors is that they're constantly on the move and families are splitting up because they don't want to all be in one house and die. And so families weren't able to communicate with each other. They weren't able to communicate with emergency services. And uh, this is the first time that Israel's ever done this, which is, you know, for us who have watched this conflict for our whole lives, we're watching things happen that our worst depravity than than we could imagine. This hasn't happened before. And Israel blocks backup services. So there's not secondary services for emergencies. They're not allowed satellite phones. They're not allowed VHS system um, systems. And so everybody was completely cut off from the outside world and from each other inside. And then it appears that Israel just flipped the switch and it came back on. The Americans are saying today in the Wall Street Journal that they told the Israelis to turn it back on. We have this kind of give and take going with the Americans and the Israelis where the Americans are really trying to bring this kind of humanitarian uh, fig leaf to what's going on. Um, we've seen them working together, like talking almost off literally the same um, talking points. We saw that with the hospital statistics. They're just uh, working together uh, on this. And so Israel cuts off the power, terrorizes people. And then the Americans say, oh, we forced them to put it back on as if it's a good cop, bad cop situation. Good genocide, bad genocide. John, on the EI live streams that we've been doing the last three weeks, you've been guiding us on how to analyze Israel's preparations for the ground war. During the blackout, Friday and Saturday, there were reports that we were able to see that people were able to get out, that Palestinian resistance factions were engaged in heavy battles with Israeli military forces around the boundary of Gaza. Do we know anything now about what happened during those battles. It doesn't look like Israel was able to make any significant advances into Gaza, especially from the north. What do we know? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to know exactly what Israel's doing, but over the last two nights, they've been moving in with armor, at least to some degree, in the north and northeast and central Gaza, two separate axes that they have come in on. From what we could see from the other side of the border, Al Jazeera had a camera that was on a rooftop. But really, the blackout meant that we actually didn't see 
much of anything. We weren't able to hear from people that are on the border that we've heard today, for example, today's Sunday, there's been clashes, audible and visible clashes with the Israeli armor that has moved in, in small numbers. But people believed that on Friday that this blackout of communications was the beginning of the ground war that Israel has kind of been promising for all of these three weeks, but really just keeps delaying and delaying doing. And through the night, Friday night, people are saying is the worst night that they've ever experienced, worst night of this war. That's the civilians, because that's who the target of these bombings were, the civilians. But even through this intense bombardment, you know, more than 13,000 airstrikes on the Gaza Strip, the Palestinian resistance hasn't been impacted at all by this. The rocket fire, the rocket barrages are constant. Palestinians, as we know, have a massive network of tunnels that, uh, according to the IDF, former Gaza Division deputy commander, feed 1,000 launching sites from underground. So the weapons, the munitions themselves are underground, the launchers are underground, they're able to be reloaded from underground. And so even in the brutality of Friday night, the constant bombardment, there's rockets being fired the whole time. And during this week where it looked like the ground war was going to be happening, there was a number of actions that took place. One, the Israelis tried to come up on the beach in Rafah and were repelled by Qassam Brigade's fighters. And then in the north, Qassam frogmen, naval commandos, went up on the beach in Zakim inside Israel proper and fought for hours with a military position that is in Zakim on the beach. And Zakim's a spot where Palestinian naval commandos have attacked before. They attacked in 2014, and there was a video of them getting right up. They came up on foot right up behind the Israeli tanks that were stationed there and were hanging explosives by hand on the tanks. That was in the 2014 war. So we're now nine years from that. And the advancements are that three fighters, according to Abu Ubaidah, who's the spokesperson for the Al-Qassam brigades, he said that three frogmen went into Israel and the fight lasted for hours. And so all through this, the resistance has shown the ability to largely be untouched. A couple of commanders have been killed and a commander from the Nukba force, which is the special forces of the Qassam brigades, have been killed by Israel. But other than that, the command and control, their ability to fire rockets, their ability to defend themselves appears to be basically completely untouched. And I guess that gets to a question that, that we have Justin, is is it possible to bomb from the air and starve people into submission? Or does Israel really have to go in in this months-long yeah. ground operation that they're promising? And I, I keep searching history <laughs> for examples, right? Because it's like for thousands of years, if you want to take a fortified city as a military, you can either storm it which is greatly costly for the attacker, or you can besiege it, what Israel's doing now. Like, John, I think you've mentioned in previous EI, Electronic Intifada, live streams that Gaza's always been under siege for at least a couple of decades. But like this siege post-October 7th is like what we would think yeah. of as like real, real siege, like complete murderous siege, no fuel, no electricity, no water, no food. So that's like, you are trying to kill everybody in there until they open the gates or whatever. I mean, it's funny because that's what a historical siege is. You're trying to get them to open the gates and all they want to do in Gaza is open the gates. (laughs) They're like, no, no, the gates are open. You're as the invader, you're most welcome to invade. They're taunting them to invade. They're they're attacking them. They're harassing them, trying to get them to invade. So it is a very unusual situation, which is why it's hard to come up with a historical analogy. Because it's like the Nazis in Leningrad, obviously, Putin mentioned that as an example where they starved the people of Leningrad, but it was like, they didn't want to storm the city, right? They didn't want to storm the city. And the defenders obviously were holding up and not wanting them to storm the city. So that's already kind of strange. 
then there's the situation in Gaza, which is like the people have nowhere to go to an unusual degree. Although you, we've had surrounded besieged cities in history that happens where the enemy is on all sides as opposed to Gaza. But Gaza has this weird thing with Egypt. So it's like there's always the possibility that Egypt, no matter how cold hearted they seem to be about this, there's always that possibility that they'll open it on their end, even just to relieve the siege part of the siege, not necessarily to try to take everybody in Gaza into a tent city in Egypt, which increasingly... Which is what the Israelis want. so much evidence now piling up that that's explicitly what they want. They've said it on TV. They've got reports they're leaking and floating as trial balloons and everything else. So can it be done? Yeah. I mean, I think it can be done. But like, it's like you've been, again, like John, you've been saying like, There's a whole bunch of things that have to go right for Israel for this to work, right? Egypt has to hold, the Arab regimes have to hold, like Jordan has to hold, the Palestinian Authority has to hold, Iran has to not get involved, Hezbollah has to not, you know, like all of the things that have to go right for this strategy that Israel is trying, which is like starvation, manipulation of aid, hunger, and then bombing to try to move the population around and maybe squeeze them out into Egypt. For that to work, there's just a lot of things that have to go right. And if they all go right and it works, what happens then? What is Israel then? I don't know. Like, I I just, it it really feels like I don't have a ready historical analogy here from the past couple of hundred years, at least. So I just don't know. I think that's a fair assessment. I don't think Gaza has a lot of yeah. analogies. And that's the, the even just the landscape itself, right? Like it's it, the, the Israelis to move in in a ground invasion, they have to move through open flat yeah. fields like, uh, like Ukraine. But then they are the first thing they hit is tall buildings that have overwatch over those fields, which already is like, there's no really other place in the world where you have to traverse fields uh, right up into just a, a high point yeah. of a city. Yeah, there's no mountains. There's, and that's yeah. basically what it is. So Israel can move through these territories to some degree, which is what we've seen over the last couple of nights. They're able to move in in certain um, into what they have previously enforced as the buffer zone. That's just fields. And there's not a ton of uh, incentive for Palestinians to invest in attack tunnels that come out at random spots in the fields. Whereas when you're in the urban environment, you'd have to assume that there's many more options for them there. And so there's not a lot you can glean from the, the clashes of the last few days, except to say that Palestinians after three weeks of brutal starvation bombing are still able to mount the effective defenses. And as you said, Justin, you're right. Abu Ubaidah yesterday literally taunted the Israelis and just said, whenever you're ready, we're here, we're waiting. They're not bluffing, right? Because strategically speaking, I think the idea, (laughs) again, historical analogies do come to mind, is that I don't know that the Israeli army can be broken by the resistance unless they go into Gaza in a big way. I don't think they can have a decisive victory over the Israeli army unless it's on their territory. Like, I don't think they can go out and, I mean, not now, but this is another point I wanted to say, which is like, there's historical analogies and then there's historical trends, right? So like when you think of the military conflict between Israel and just like, let's just take the Palestinians and let's just take Gaza. You've been talking about this, John, especially for for years, decades. But like each time the balance like the Palestinians are catching up. It's not that the Israelis are getting farther and farther ahead. It's the opposite. It's, um, it seems like the longer this goes on in terms of years, 
the more the Palestinians advance relative to the Israelis. And it's like the, the historical analogy there is, of course, Hezbollah and Lebanon, but also Iran. Like, And these are all allies, and they all have the same kind of philosophy where it's like Iran isn't selling weapons to Hamas, right? Iran has advised them on how to create a military-industrial complex. It's a whole military-industrial complex that they develop so that they can do it themselves. So the whole philosophy here is like, Iran doesn't liberate you for yourself. Iran helps you liberate yourself. And like, Iran helps Hezbollah develop a missile complex and a whole defensive doctrine, and then they go and do the same thing in Gaza. After the Palestinians advised the Iranians back in the 1970s right. in South Lebanon right. how to overthrow the Shah, I posted a thing from Robert Fisk that was talking about that. Yeah. Right? It was them. It was it was the Palestinians fighting in the 1970s um, when the Iranians came over to learn how to fight. Right. And Robert Fisk talks about in his book, Pity the Nation, about how him and another Western correspondent saw this Iranian guy who was saying that he was just in South Lebanon to train because they wanted to overthrow the Shah. And Robert Fisk and his buddy kind of... He was like, what a what a blowhard or something, right? Yeah, like kind of laugh at him. And, you know, you get this moment in history where you're seeing something like that, you know, that has been a give and take from both sides all throughout this process. And yeah, and Israel, it seems like that's the thing is Israel sort of seems to be saying that like this now is the time to destroy Hamas. Like that's the the language that they're using. And it's not even that surprising because when we talk about a siege, what is the next siege on Gaza? Like what does Israel's plan that they can just do a limited incursion and then go back to life as normal in Israel when everybody knows how to break out of the prison. That's right. Now? And yeah, and and people have been through this traumatic, I mean, tr- trauma doesn't even begin to describe it, but 2.3 million people, you know, living through the last three weeks of, of, a, of a complete nightmare. Yeah. D- does Israel think that like people in Gaza are just going to be like, all right, like, let's go back to status quo. Yes, exactly. And does Israel think that the settlers Maybe will get the Europeans to build it again? Right. Yeah. Do, do they think that these like kibbutz, you know, these colonies around Gaza are just going to be like repopulated by settlers? Like what? It, it's it's a uh, yeah. I, I I don't think I've I've ever been this like stumped at what. The, the near futures. Or I mean, what I, yeah. What what is what is in store? I who knows at this point. Like the siege is maintained by Israel on two sides, mm-hmm. Egypt on one side, and Israel on the sea side. Okay, Israel cannot maintain the sea side unless other powers accept that that they're going to do that. Anytime Iran wants. They can sail, they can they can send ships to dock at Gaza, except now we have the American Navy. Yeah. Like <laughs> what, half the American Navy? Well they, they have All they the still American, have they, they still have a lot everything? in the South I don't China know. There's sea. What, so, two carriers? Yeah. Don't worry. Yeah. Okay, all right. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure China's grateful to, I hope China's oh, grateful to Gaza God. for relieving the pressure of half of the, um, and I hope Russia's grateful to, uh, to Gaza for relieving yeah. um, <laughs> half the military supply to Ukraine. Let me just say for our audience, some of the things that the Americans have sent. So they immediately sent an aircraft carrier, which it comes with an entire destroyer escort. So it's a number of ships, more than a dozen. And then they sent last week a second aircraft carrier strike group. So all of the the planes, all of the escort ships, they've sent the Marine 26th Expeditionary Unit. Yesterday, the Pentagon said they're calling up 900 more soldiers. 
They've done a special airlift that Haaretz called it to Israel that has included more than 100 heavy lift planes flying back and forth with weapons to drop off. They've sent military advisors. They sent a three-star general who was a special forces commander in the battles in Raqqa and Mosul in Iraq and Syria and fought in the battles of Fallujah, which we talked about are the kind of the examples that the Americans are using for urban warfare. So they're sending their urban warfare specialists. Of course, we've seen the diplomatic stuff that they're doing. They're sending advanced air defense systems, a number of units, their most advanced air defense systems, which they're sending in order to combat what has been happening in the region, which is a number of attacks on U.S. stations in Iraq and Syria, because those two countries also have fighting forces that are nominally allied with Iran and uh, Hezbollah that should they decide to join some kind of regional fight, you know, number in the hundreds of thousands. And these troops have been targeting U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria. So the U.S. is sending a direct message here. And then they, they said that the latest one, the 900 troops that they were not going to Israel, that they were going elsewhere in the region. So the U.S. is at the point where they're doing so much for Israel that they actually have to tell people that when they're not doing it, they're not doing it for Israel. <laughs> Perhaps you should tell us what you're not doing. Well, like, I, but for what? Like, the, okay, so they're sending their, like, strike force units and all of these, like, elite generals who have laid waste to places elsewhere in the Middle East. But like, it seems to me that they're trying to plan some sort of like, you know, destruction of the tunnels in Gaza, the 500 kilometers of tunnels. Like how, what, in what reality would an American strike force unit directing Israeli sold, you know, reservists or whatever, like, how would they even begin to access the tunnels and purport to like take out Kassam brigades and other resistance factions and the and like rescue the the Israeli captives that are all being held underneath? Like, what is the actual plan for these forces? Well, I think that they're trying to deter Hezbollah so that there's not more of a fight in the north which would then free up Israeli troops to try to deal with the tunnel situation. But yeah, the tunnel. Like they're just going to send Shlomo into a hole in no, the ground. And like, this, I, I don't understand the this. Way that I, <laughs> I know, the way that I see the, the, when you look at the numbers, right? Like look at the numbers. The Israelis say that they've mobilized 300,000 Troops. Now we know that most of these are not like non combat troops for sure. At least non combat yes. troops. And if, if they're combat troops, they're not this, they're not this kind of combat troops. And like also like sending three, like again, like space, think of like there's a military theorist from Britain. Basil Liddell Hart. He was a historian of World War One and World War Two, and he talks about the ratio between space and force. You cannot get three hundred and sixty thousand troops into Gaza. Like they're gonna be stumbling over one another. Like it's it's actually too big of a group, and they'll be targeted the entire time. Yeah, right? They'll be targeted, gathering, going in on their way in, supplying that number of people. The trucks, the, I mean, uh, all of it. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what, like, it's a big number and I get it. And it's, you know, it's a big, it's big and scary and so on. But it's like, if they had said we're assembling an army of 60,000 elite soldiers that have been training for 15 years in a tunnel complex that we've built or something, you'd be like, whoo, okay, well, this is going to be a battle, the battle of the century. Like, 
Well, that number of troops is more like a thousand, two thousand. So those are those numbers of troops are, and they are, and that's one of the things about the Israeli military is the way that their reserve service works is that their combat troops are often the reserve soldiers, and some of the soldiers that will be going into Gaza will be going into Gaza because they've been in Gaza before. That's how they fight. That's how. That's why. They'll have commanders or officers that have participated in each of the wars because that's the way that their fighting force operates, which is also part of the civilian soldier divide in Israel. Is that the idea that we're calling them school teachers when we want to increase victim totals, and then we're calling them this really interesting reserve army that's actually super combat ready at all times. That you can call up three hundred thousand of them within hours, right? They called them up within hours, and that they called up so many troops they don't have equipment for them, and they don't have their entire Gaza southern division. And the thing we were talking about earlier, Nora, about the settlers, is that they don't have their security forces anymore. The settlement security forces are the forces that were killed or captured, yeah. And so they have to replace all that front line. Defense and those were, you know, we we read the we read the accounts from the from kibbutz, uh, you know, a couple of kibbutzes did they did an Economist podcast and a New York Times podcast, and it's like the guy that they interviewed is always like some forty year old guy, and he's like, I heard the alarms, I picked up my two nine millimeters, I threw on my bulletproof vest, I reported to the armory, we picked up our weapons. I'm like, yeah you know, this is a sleepy suburban town. And he says, you know, we used all our military training. We're all trained. We all know what to do. It's our muscle memory. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, that, that, that part of the story of what happens the day after the war is, is a really significant one, how they're going to rearm enough people to, I mean, it's called the Gaza envelope. If you look at a map of it, it's the, 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 the kibbutz are drawn on there to surround the Gaza Strip. It's a part of the fence. It's a, the part that we live in a world that ha- Jack Nicholson told you guys this, right? We live in a world that has walls and those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. Like that, right. the, there's the wall and then there's the fortified settlements, but just behind yeah. it. That's, those are the people that are guaranteeing that the inmates can't get out. Yeah. And they're, Gone. And they're gone, and, they're gone and the right and they're the gone. inmates are super angry because they're being massacred yeah. in appalling yeah. fashion, which could fill an entire show just talking about the carnage in Gaza. Ugh. This will impact generations of how people see yeah. this conflict. Yeah. The idea of the siege yeah. seems to be problematic for Israel going forward. I mean, of course it is. Yeah, that's their only tool. I just want to say, like, going back to the Americans, so, like, with these numbers of 300,000 reservists, and then you look at what the Americans are sending, and it's like, we're sending 4,000, and we're sending 900, and it's like, uh, you know, I get that first world armies believe that they're worth 10 or 20 times what third world armies are, and it's actually the opposite in many cases, that, like, one or three or four guerrillas can outfight, you know, much larger units, but... When you compare what the Americans are sending to what the Israelis already have, what difference will 4,000 Americans make here? What difference will 900 Americans make here? They they will make absolutely no difference, right? This is, the navies there are obviously there for Iran or, you know, etc. But like to guarantee the siege, but like the American troops, what do they have that the Israeli troops don't have? I don't know. I mean, I think some of the troops are for manning the missile defense systems. I think, honestly, (laughs) the the deterrence (laughs) of the two aircraft carriers is that if Hezbollah joins the war, the first thing they're going to do is hit Israel's airstrips, right? And it will be necessary for the planes to be... I mean, the thing that Israel thought on October 7th was that Qassam was coming for their airfields, which they almost were. They made it as far as Okafim, which is 30 kilometers inland, and they were within reach of the main Israeli air bases that are around the Gaza Strip. And before they even put aircraft in the air to attack the Qassam fighters, they Israel moved their air, put aircraft on trucks and moved them out of the way because they were within 
reach. Hezbollah has precision guided missile capabilities that they've been working on for more than a decade. What do you think their first targets are going to be? And, and that that's the part of the war that escalates really, really quickly. And I think the aircraft carriers are floating there to, keep the to basically raise the stakes, to make the stakes be for Hezbollah be World War III, because the stakes for Israel are the destruction of their state, right? The, the missile capacity that Hezbollah has is orders of magnitude more than the Palestinians have. They have precision guided capabilities, which means they can pick a target and hit it. They don't have to fire a barrage. They can pick the defense ministry in downtown Tel Aviv and hit it. They can pick the offshore oil and gas rigs that Israel is attempting you know, to use they can hit their main chemical plants. They can hit their nuclear facilities. They could do all of that stuff, and that could happen very quickly. It's not 2006 anymore where they're going to fire a lot of katushas and people are going to have to be in bomb shelters. They have the ability to destroy critical infrastructure in Israel that would grind the country to a halt. They can waste the airport with missiles. And so the U.S. is trying to get their advanced missile defense systems in place and try to give Israel more of them because the rockets, they're not Qassam rockets coming at them from from Hezbollah. Their ability to overwhelm the Iron Dome and David's sling and, and these systems, even the Patriot systems, is very provable. And Hezbollah's doing that from hilltops, firing them downhill. And that's why Israel has evacuated those communities. They've completely evacuated the north. They've completely evacuated the south. They're trying to get airlifts out of Tel Aviv. It's not clear that there's the durability and resilience in the Israeli state right now. We remember one day before the war started, they all hated each other and half the country was in the streets and half the country was working uh, in government to try to make a fascist state. And the two sides were at each other. No, but like society is collapsing too, right? Like you have actual, you, you at the university at Netanya, did you guys see yeah. that the other day? Like yeah, you have a night? KKK yeah, militia. They're, they're threatening to, right, right. to burn the dorm. They tried to burn the dorm down where uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel were standing. Yeah, they mobbed that's the dorm. A, that's, that's a bad yeah. sign for like where your society is going, yeah. right? Like you're not, that's a, yeah. that's a bad sign for where your society is going. And like the families of the um, people that have been yeah. uh, captured by uh, the Palestinian resistance, their slogan is everyone for everyone. I, I guess they have like a unified yeah. slogan in a position. Yeah, they're agreeing with Abu Obeidah. Which is everyone you know, like, for everyone, which again, yeah. that's like your the cohesion of your project is not going so well right now. No. That might be a whole whole different show, but Yeah. No, but but the all for all prisoner exchange to release all yeah. the Palestinian prisoners and add those people to the West Bank yeah. uprising that looks like it's happening right now. If, if this was any mm-hmm. other time, we would say there was a war on the northern border. We would probably be calling what's happening in the West Bank and Intifada at this point. There's armed struggle in yeah. multiple northern cities everywhere. everywhere. And there's demonstrations yeah. all day long. There's general strikes. You know, people predicted a third Intifada for a long time and were very wrong for, you know, two <laughs> decades. But yeah. I look at that and I say that that's what an intifada looks like. They're assassinating yeah, right. um, the top leadership. Um, Israel's tied up in fights. They had to call in airstrikes by jets and drones in the West yeah. Bank. That is, um, you know, they're arming their settlers. And the Palestinian Authority is, Palestinian is also in combat. Know, killing and arresting people. Yeah, The scheme here is like Israel is going to have to devote enormous resources forever to keeping every Palestinian in jail, in some kind of fortress Mm -hmm. jail forever. Or it's like, okay, I think they were, I think they were willing to accept this, you know, like it's clear they had that, like, let's do it. Or what's the other option, right? Is this the beginning of the end of the state? Can they continue? 
doing this. And and exactly. With this cost, right? Because because like they're really good Western armies, Western, especially like the Anglosphere, the British, the Americans, the Israelis, they're very good at hiding how much they're suffering, right? So it's like, uh, I've seen like pro, um, pro resistance uh, accounts and slogans, and they say like, we, we celebrate every martyr, we, you know, we show their faces, we describe who they were, and they hide every death on their side. And the the consequence of that is like, okay, well, for for a long time, you know, you don't know, you don't know how many people are Israel is losing, you don't know how much what Israel's military losses are, we don't know what the cost of this is. But like, it it will suddenly collapse. Like it, it's not, we're, we're, they're not going to be too many signs before the whole thing collapses. It's gonna it's gonna look like it's invincible, and then it's gonna collapse. Like because of because of the nature of their um, propaganda, like the way that they do propaganda is to hide uh, what hide their losses, exaggerate their gains, um, give false hope to. Um, their side, honestly, uh, try to psych out the other side. So, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's, it's always been a weird way to run a society, but like a long-term multi-decade conflict with, with an enemy that's getting stronger all the time, like Hezbollah, you were talking about Hezbollah's capacities, right, John? And it's like Hezbollah built those capacities from nothing from absolutely nothing and like what Hamas, what you know what hamas has what the palestinian resistance has in gaza was built from nothing especially in gaza that's especially the case in gaza the 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 weapons that they're firing the the domestic homemade production of weapons the repurposing of weapons the engineering and the capacity to just completely transform the conflict while like as Abu Ubaidah said, like from the impossible, this completely besieged territory where no one's allowed to trade, no boats are allowed to float in. They managed to build a durable, resilient domestic weapons production capacity. It's really unbelievable. Well, Israel was told, we were told that Israel is the startup nation and the you know, we were told for for a long time, fifteen years, about Unit eighty two hundred and their technology specialists that uh, you know were surveilling the Palestinians and all all of these systems that Israel has has bragged about. Even the settler system, the way the settlers. I mean, I think we should talk a little bit about October seventh. Uh, yeah, I've been gathering everything that I could about October 7th. Clearly, this is like something that's important to alternative media people because the cradle did a what really happened on October 7th. Mondo Weiss did a what really happened on October 7th. Uh, the Gray Zone did a what really happened on October 7th. And they all have pieces. And us too. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you had the Yasmin Porat. That's the, everybody's quoting your uh, your piece on, on Yasmin Porat from Kibbutz Berry. So... So wait, what's the propaganda line? I heard it on BBC yesterday. They say that more than 1,400 civilians died. The propaganda line is 1,400 people, 1,400 civilians, beheaded babies, rapes, and atrocities of a kind that are not fathomable to the human mind. And that's all of those pieces are important, especially the idea that it's like, absolutely unfathomable atrocities that took place because if it was fathomable atrocities then you would be able to compare them to what israel's doing now but if they're unfathomable atrocities then it's like whatever israel does is fine it can't compare it can't compare to the inhumanity of what happened on uh, october 7th and that justifies Completely the war in basic right. and that, right. it, that it is civilized the, yeah that's right it justifies not just the war, but it justifies like the savagery right. of the war. Absolutely. It justifies I mean, that's, every that's murder, the currency child, that they're every, using, exactly. You know, building that's brought down, every use of white phosphorus, every bombing of a yeah. hospital, every bombing of a church, every bombing of a mosque, every bombing of a university and school and United Nations personnel, mm-hmm. everything. Everything is justified in terms of the unique atrocity of 
October 7th. So, you know, the fundamental point about that is that every, every detail of the atrocities of October 7th trace back to the Israeli military. There is no other source. So like there was like a discussion in one source about like the Jewish Daily Forward, I think, where they said, you know, American media reproduced the story of rapes before there was evidence of rapes. And then at the beginning of the article, they go, however, since then, the Israeli military has confirmed that rapes took place. And then you click on that and you go through and it's just an Israeli defense spokesperson affirming that rapes took place. There's nothing else. There's no other detail. So there's no other source except the Israeli military for these claims of the uniqueness of this atrocity. And and then they're being repeated by Biden, right? Like that's been a crucial part of all mm-hmm. of these lies. Who who was given the you know the the actual talking points when he said that he had seen the beheaded babies, you know, video evidence of beheaded babies. That was given to him by Netanyahu's office. Right. So the White House had to actually come out and say, actually, he didn't see anything. We got these points from Netanyahu himself. And because we've been watching, right, we've watched, I'll just say for our audience, dozens of hours of video footage. There's an unbelievable amount of footage from Saturday because of a combination security cameras, cell yeah. phones, participants, traffic cameras, yeah. victims. Uh, GoPros, security systems, GoPros on their heads, uh, just a lot, uh, first responders. And then there's this whole other thing that they need to collect all of the body parts for a proper cultural burial. So there's actually this group called Zaka that goes around and will spend like to find every minute detail. Yeah, it's the rabbinical coroner's unit. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and so they have video that they've been releasing. Like we have video, like so that yeah, essentially we have coroner's videos, like uh, in effect, right? Which is what the Zaka stuff is like. You don't get that on most situations. You don't have that kind of visual detail. The videos, if they were there, would be seen because we've seen a lot of videos, yeah. and we've heard. From a lot of Israelis, yeah. because I—I I mean, I was watching. I think probably all of us were watching the attack happen that Saturday morning, and we heard. Like I was watching live as the Israeli TV was talking to people on that were phoning from their kibbutz, saying that you know they they Kassam brigades just came around and told us all to go hide in our bomb shelters, things like that. EI have published about the crossfire. All of that stuff was out immediately it wasn't like weeks later we've we've seen that evidence so i just want to say that part so tell us more about essentially what you found which is partly we've seen how the security forces all interact with each other the army the settler security the police force we watched how that operated we knew how it operated in theory but it's never been tested fully like that before but it's like the (laughs) it's like these poor innocent, like, so there's there's these stories of like, okay, you know, these poor people were like just attacked out of the blue and this horrible atrocity was committed on them. And then it's like, now we're going to talk to Adam or we're going to talk to Mr. Golan. And then Mr. Golan or Adam, both of whom were in different kibbutzes, uh, talk about like getting up, like I said, getting up, getting their pistols, getting their things, getting their, going to the armory and then just like throwing down, you know? And one of them, I think Mr. Adam was like, yeah, I shot one of the terrorists three times and I shot him in the head. And then like the fence, they were like, luckily the fence, uh, the electric fence around the community failed, which meant it stayed in the locked position, which meant they couldn't drive their vehicles through it. So this sleepy suburban community is surrounded by a fence that you can't drive a a truck through. So it's like, this is a fortified community with militarily trained people that were fighting. They both, both of those podcasts, The Economist and the NYT Daily, they both describe battles, gun battles. And in one of them, the one with Adam. I don't remember the name of the kibbutz. Do you? Do you guys remember? Anyway, the one with Barry was, was the one. Is the no, one I'll that tell was you defended, about both. I think. Yeah. Yeah. 
the the one that Adam was at was every attacker, every Palestinian attacker was killed. uh, If you follow his his testimony, and Israel says fifteen hundred. That that the number they're saying is that there's fifteen hundred bodies of Palestinian attackers. We don't know that. So we lost a lot of people, but we killed every single one of the attackers. That's what uh, Adam said. And then the guy from Barry. So Barry is a little different. Barry's the one which you guys uh, at Electronic Intifada covered. Um, Mondo Weiss did a lot about Barry. And Max Blumenthal's report in Gray Zone also did a lot about Barry because Max Blumenthal viewed some of this. So there was some QR. He describes like a conference where the Israeli spokesman gave a QR code to go and watch extra atrocity footage um, from that attack. And Max watched it and then he saw it and he was like, this does not look like the kinds of weapons that uh, the Palestinian resistance has. This looks like hellfire missiles fired from helicopters, tank shells blowing up houses in Barrie, which is where you know, Blumenthal uh, surmised most of the casualties may have have resulted, right? And the witnesses like Yasmin Porat and the other people describe that too. Like the, the the other guy, Mr. Golan, he can't. He said, "I came out and there was a tank." The tank gunners, the tank commander said, "We had to go into the kibbutz and blow up terrorists because of um, because they were intermixed with the hostages." So they were freely talked about how they killed. Their own people. You know, Israelis. Yeah. Yeah. We had to make terrible decisions. Yeah. They killed Israelis so they could kill Palestinians. Um, and then uh, Erez Checkpoint, too. Uh, the, the commander of Erez Checkpoint called an airstrike on his own position. There's fighting going on in Erez Checkpoint now, I believe. Uh, Palestinians have mm-hmm. attacked it again. Today, yeah. Uh, you know, since then. But like the symbolic exit of the ghetto. Yeah. Yeah, how you get in the, the main way that people well, come not in and out. Symbolic, the literal. Yeah. yeah. So there, uh, but but just to say, so Hellfire missiles, uh, attack helicopters, tanks, uh, all have all these heavy weapons were used in the kibbutz by the Israeli army, with no regard for whether the Israelis were there or not. And so, like the burning, the burned remains that are shown, that's characteristic of that kind of weaponry right yeah and so it's uh you know the cars outside of the nova festival look like they were hit by airstrikes by airstrikes yeah which people describe yeah that like a car doesn't explode because of a old uh, kalashnikov or even an rpg like i i you know exactly they, they, right. those were the weapons of the resistance they had uh small arms and they had rocket propelled grenades that's what they had right and they did everything that they did with the, with that set of weapons right um so you know turning it into uh the worst atrocity that has ever happened you know there is not since the holocaust right that's they've been the using that Jews, language repeatedly I mean, deliberately right that's i mean that's it's for it's it serves a purpose yeah. to trigger uh, you know, trauma in Jewish communities, in especially in Israel, but also around the West, where you know people have been indoctrinated for generations now about you know another Holocaust is just around the corner. If you don't yep. support the state of Israel, you're going to be caught on the back foot, and you know it's the only safe place. Whatever, whatever Israel does, whatever they do to anybody. Exactly. The last thing I want to say, just right. in terms of the data that I've been looking at, which is the ha- there's the Haaretz list, right? So Haaretz has published a list and they update it, and it's now been 22 days, and their list has 900 plus names. So it's so not 1400, not 1400, which is strange, and also like certainly be- not beheaded, civilians. Beheaded no. babies or burned babies, the, the Haaretz list so far has no babies, meaning right. no no child of age. No, There are lots of names. There's 900 plus names. Last time I looked at it, it was 902. 540 of them had names. The remaining did not have, uh, no, had ages, I believe. 
the remaining ones did not even have ages. Yeah, attached. they stopped doing ages. And the only ones that have children with ages are Bedouins that were yeah, killed. Yeah, for mm -hmm. age, age zero to three, there was nobody. There was about 20 children total. About 10 of them were ages four to nine. So really small kids. But uh, the smallest kids had Arab names and they um, they were hit by rockets or something. So I, you yeah. know, I don't know. But like... Not very, not a lot of them had photos, you know, about, about half of them, I think had photos. I don't remember. I'll, I'll, I'll show you what you'll see when, when I publish, but like, uh, 900 names, 400, the Israelis say are army. Yeah. Yeah. The, Israel, the, the list identifies most many hundreds as military personnel and right. including but senior military personnel so yeah. very senior special forces units yeah. but also hundreds yeah. of cops we know hundreds of cops yeah. right. they took over the they the hundreds of cops and then we know all yeah, of the adam and golan from right. nuram and that talked about fighting right yeah, we know that each kibbutz had uh you know, those are it, those in the list would be considered civilians. Those are considered civilians. So Adam with his two pistols and his his dual wielding pistols, Colin, uh, yeah. working with the KK. Uh, that's the name of the militia, the KK. Calling uh, the Israeli and, army, integrated with the police. Yeah, right? those like, are civilians. They're uh, all everyone who civilians. died from that is considered a civilian. So, so again, like turning that into a unique like adam himself uh this guy who's who was at near um thank you for reminding me the name he calls it a second holocaust either him or the other one so calling this attack where hundreds of like a, a very large portion of uh, the people killed were military police or armed civilians armed to the teeth and a large number of the civilians were killed by Israeli heavy weapons in the counterattack of the 8th. As a unique atrocity in history, that can only be, that can only be done with the intent of trying to justify the right. genocide in, in Gaza. I mean, what would, like, I, I just, I'm, you know, it's gonna all come out. I mean, it's coming out now, but like eventually Israelis are going to have to reconcile with the fact that their own army and security forces killed their own people and then blamed it on Palestinians to to justify the genocide. Like, what is that gonna do to the Israelis? You know, like what, like psychologically, how are they going to have to come to terms with that? And what does that mean? I don't, I, it's a rhetorical question, but like, I'm just like, are they going to keep trying to perpetuate this lie or are they going to have to come to terms with the fact that this was done the way it was done? So Nora, isn't there one of the holidays where they put up all the names of people who were killed in the last year in Israel, they like kind of have like on a TV station, they'll put like all of the veterans who have died in their wars. Like at some point they're going to memorialize the people that were killed in right. the South. They can't, the, the lie isn't possible to perpetuate going forward. They're ultimately going to memorialize people, yeah. right? Like they're already starting to tell the stories of like, you know, the stories that Justin was saying, like those guys are being framed as the heroes yeah. that saved Niram. Yeah. Right. You're going to start to hear about individual soldiers who did heroic things, right. which is actually incidentally what I was confused about, about the like second Holocaust thing. Like, I don't understand necessarily how that's better for Israel to be like, we let, um, you know, our women be defiled. We let our second Holocaust happened that that you couldn't be protected for 12 hours. Like this, the kibbutz settlers are angry yeah. at the yeah. IDF. Yeah. The, yeah. That's there's what, going that's to what be a Adam period said. of time. Adam from near Am that's said right. Netanyahu does not deserve citizens like us, but like yeah. being, being, why wouldn't they say that though? Why wouldn't they say they heroically defended their communities 
from like this, the genesis, the like second Holocaust thing, I get that it justifies the brutal yeah. war, but it's a bold move yeah. to, it's a to, big move. to it's, use it's a, the entire- a, there's a, They're burning a lot of cards. I mean, that's how I feel about yeah. the West, right? I feel yeah. about like Canada and like Trudeau and the conservatives and the NDP here, the, the Nora, the, the NDP here- I'm so in sorry. In Ontario, they they dump. There was one yeah. one member of the legislative assembly who said yep. she wanted a ceasefire and called it apartheid and occupation. And they and expelled they her. Dumped her. They they just yeah. expelled with her. no portfolio, just a backbencher. <laughs> just just, just there's literally no room in yeah. the Social Democratic Party no. No. for someone who calls for a ceasefire and and. When people people have been writing them, NDP voters have been writing to them and saying like, "What do you? What have you done?" And they're like, "It's not because she called for a ceasefire. It's because she's difficult. She's mm-hmm. apparently the most difficult. She. They decided after the genocide started that she was too difficult. Apparently, amazing, isn't it? But why? What's the? the they're burning those yeah. cards. It, it just seems like that was such a big card yeah. to burn. It's a big card that you can't protect those communities. Mm-hmm. That all, uh, mm-hmm. and now you're going to have to restock the fighters, the police force. But it is, it is a good card because you want they want to be invincible, but they also have to be victims to to justify what they're doing. It has. It's, it's the foundational yeah. Israeli contradiction. Yeah. Yeah. Of like the strongest and smartest and most resilient and nimblest, and also the <laughs> weakest, yeah. the most suffering, the most victimized. The yeah, it's it's an impossible contradiction, <laughs> and it's not, we're seeing it's not it new. It's fall not new. apart, right? Yeah. Okay, guys, what what are we looking for? in the days ahead. Okay. Uh, there's one thing I want to say, which is like, in ter- again, in terms of like broad historical trends, like watching the Russia Ukraine war for the past couple of years, is it, has it been a couple of years? feels yeah. like forever, but like, there's a lot of things that have been happening militarily there that uh, are like happening now, which, you know, if you haven't been following it, you won't realize, like, I've been saying this for a while, like, the regional war has started. Like, the war, people saying, like, why hasn't Hezbollah joined? Hezbollah has joined. Like, why hasn't Iran joined? Iran has joined. This is how, ha- mm. the, the war has started. The war in between his, uh, like, on the northern border between Lebanon and Israel is, like, it's active. It's not you. It's not like Israel is not doing it either, guys. Remember, they're they haven't like massed a, a ton of armor and driven into Gaza. That's not how it's done anymore. Like Russia didn't do that. Yeah. Ukraine didn't do that. Ukraine maybe tried to do that a couple of times during the counteroffensive. It did not go well for them. Their armor was all blown apart by the Russians. Right? They they had all these prepared defensive positions, and it was so. It's like, this is like a really, and and it's also, the other thing is like, people expect things to be really fast, but it's not fast. Like we're not, no, it's not. we're not, we're, we're at the very beginning of this. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's not, this could go on for years and like yeah. the world is not going to be recognizable by the time that region is not going to be recognizable by the time this is over. I don't think, I mean, I don't know. I've been wrong before, certainly, but like this, the like, it it's not going to look like a sudden like a burst of missiles going towards Israel. Yeah, you know, like it's 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 going to look like this. You know, like, it's going to look like this, and I think also it's going to look like more and more Israelis using their second or third passports yeah. and leaving. Mm-hmm. And which they won't they, tell you about either. They, That's probably of course they been won't. happening. No, no. It'll be very, the, it'll be a quiet Quiet quitting. Exodus. Quiet quitting, like yeah, millennials. Quiet quitting. Yeah. Is it millennials self, or is it Gen Self-deportation, Z? right. Yeah. yeah. yeah the, was the it, number something like, I shouldn't say live on air numbers, but was the number is something like more than 100 are double passport holders. More that, than 100. That are going to like. More than 100,000. Of the, of the captives. Oh, oh, oh I see. Interesting. 
Yeah, I know there's there's a bunch of foreigners. I mean, that's what Abu Abeda said. The um, other, the only other thing, yeah. the other thing I, I wanted to say about like what I'm watching for is like, yeah, to return to that earlier question, like, can Israel do this by famine and bombing mm-hmm. alone? I mean historically because the main thing right now is there's no fuel yeah and so the siege is being right now the starvation is brutal people have a little bit of food resiliency but what they need is fuel and fuel is the thing that will allow there to be running water will allow there to be desalination for hygiene will allow hospitals Hospitals. to function so fuel is really the one Thing that people need. These trucks, the 40 or a few dozen trucks that have come across the border aren't what people would, they need a massive humanitarian influx, but they, they need fuel. Yeah. And it's not clear that Israel's going to allow fuel in if this ground operation is actually a thing. And then if it does take months, like you say, Justin, and like military analysts obviously think it's going to take more than a year if your goal is to destroy the tunnels and destroy Hamas like Netanyahu and the army have said the goal uh, is to do. But the, I think the short-term thing that I'm looking for is, is there a, is there a mechanism to get fuel into the Gaza Strip mm-hmm. through, um, through some kind of means? Yeah. Be that a prisoner exchange of some sort. Um, it doesn't look like a ceasefire is an option. I mean, now you have the International Criminal Court head, the UN Secretary General. They're all standing on the Gaza border now yeah. in Rafa, looking like helpless, <laughs> right. um, like reg- like if regular only we old could aid do workers. Something, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, we should talk. We should. So, how long can that happen? Right. How? How? Literally, how long? Mm-hmm. How long can Gaza hold out? Uh, yeah. UNRWA the United Nations uh, Refugee Agency, which is basically a parastate organization. They're not staffing their buildings. They're not staffing the schools that have the tens of thousands of people staying at them. They're not driving their trucks around. No, they they Um, left. And so they're down to Hamas funding, uh, fueling, like the civil defense, the hospitals, um, the firefighters, um, the ambulances, um, like that, that stuff that fuel reserve is, is it's not forever. No. Yeah. It's, it's something has to give, it seems like, uh, on the fuel. Front. That kind of thing has happened before. So, you know, it's, it's, um, that's not unprecedented, right? A siege that, that doesn't, uh, allow fuel, but mm. yeah, I mean, again, historically, it seems to me like genocide, uh, happens alongside war, but it doesn't, like the side that does the genocide doesn't usually win the war. It's kind of, yeah. Anyway, yeah. There's, there have yeah. been several genocides where the side that usually the Americans where they, where they commit genocide and they win. Uh, but there have also been cases where they commit genocide and they lose. So it's just, a especially hmm. in the last 50 years. Yeah. Okay, so Justin, where can people find that writing that you're doing? Uh, about that? I, yeah, I've gone to Substack, so it's gonna come. It's gonna come out on Substack uh, probably Tuesday ish. Just search for my name, which you can find at the Anti Empire Project dot yeah, org. Yeah, you can look up the anti- and Nora. What are you up to this week? Uh, same old, same old <laughs> at the Electronic Intifada, uh, where John, you are now my officially my colleague there. Um, and uh, we're going to be bringing our audience of course more live streams um, and uh, John maybe uh, you want to talk a little bit about a a new feature that's that's, uh, soon to be launched on EI oh yeah so well basically we want uh, people to know that right now we're doing Monday and Thursday for the live stream it may and then, yeah, we're we're making some little changes at uh, EI that will um, just nothing different than's happening. Just bring together some of the content yeah. um, that EI has been producing. It's um, amazing the amount of material that is put out by such a small but uh, mighty crew, and with a number of co- uh, colleagues and correspondents in the Gaza Strip. That is pretty much the only place you're getting 
um, I, that I've seen these days where you're yeah. getting consistent, consistent coverage from, uh, from Gaza. So yeah. check that stuff out at EI and we will, I'm going to make you guys commit to this while we're on the air. We will do this again yeah. Yeah. and we will keep you updated throughout yeah. the course of the war. Um, it's, uh, seems like we need to settle in, but it's been a crazy three weeks. Yeah. So, uh, we hope to do this more often, but, um, forgive us for being a little distracted and overwhelmed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're doing our right, best. Thanks, guys. I'm sure everybody feels the same way. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's it's been a mountain of information yeah. and it's, it's just so much of it is couched in devastation. And, yeah. um, you know, we talk about this stuff like analysts, we try to, to be all business or I do yeah, at least, exactly. but it's, uh, a lot of my friends are involved in this. A lot of Nora's friends are involved in this. And uh, every day there's sort of a... Who's alive? Uh, yeah, just yeah. like a constant uh, roller coaster of uh, of emotions yeah. for this whole thing. So I think everybody's feeling that a little bit. So um, also, yep. I guess, want to thank people that have reached out to us and um, sent us kind words. And we hopefully... Uh, we'll figure out some way to make this regular for the coming weeks because it doesn't look like this is going to change nope. soon. So hopefully we will uh, do these roundtables more, maybe bring in a friend of the show, Tarek Lubani, to do that. He's at a demo today. There's a big demo going on in Toronto, and there's been demos going on huge. all over the world. Absolutely weekend, huge and so. completely blacked out. Yeah. Yep. Completely blacked out. And I, there's so many other things that we could talk about. I feel like there's, we could do this, but uh, those demonstrations and how people are reacting um, are, are important parts yeah. of the story that don't, uh, it's difficult to make space for when we're talking about what's happening in Gaza because it's just so devastating and the coverage is still just so weak. It is. It's, it's incredible. So anyways, uh, long-winded wrap up, but yeah. Um, I'm John Elmer I'm Nora for Nora Barrows-Friedman and Justin Poder and our producer extraordinaire, Pierre Loisel, in the background there. We will... There you go. Hey, Pierre. <laughs> <laughs> we will bring you more. So, antiempireproject.org, thebriefpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter. We still tweet there, even though it's... Not what it used <laughs> to be until they take us off until, until they, take they us boot off. us until they boot us off thanks justin okay, thanks john time,